Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 23rd, 2018, and this is episode 2278 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Thursday, it's time for Listener Call Show, right? This is a show where you pick up your phone. And you dial a number, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, or you go to the survivalpodcast.com, you mash the contact link, and you go there, and there's a thing that says speak pipe. You mash that button, and you can leave me a message through the magic of the interwebs. In any event, in case you ain't figured it out yet, this is a podcast. It's not live. It is Memorex. Yes, I'm dating myself. And uh, that means that you will not hear me go, hey, caller, this is Jack. What's your question? Or something like that. You'll get a uh, recording system one way or the other. And this is what you do if you want to be on the air. You make your point, or you ask your question, and you do it in one sentence. I promise you it can be done. The good news is then you can give me as much detail as you want, and I will pay attention to it. But if you do not ask your question or make your point up front, I probably will delete your call before I hear it all. I guarantee you if I'm 30 seconds in and I don't know what you're asking, I'm going to the next call. And I don't do that to be a jerk. I do that because I have to due to volume and having to get a show cranked out for you five days a week. I'm trying to help you help me help you. Uh, next up, make sure when you call, you are in a quiet area. If you call from the back of a motorcycle or running a chainsaw or a weed eater, I probably will not use your call. And if you are on what most of us are on, which is some sort of mobile device, uh, take a look at the bars on your phone. If there's not at least two bars, move around a little bit and find that quiet spot with a little bit better signal than make your call because there will be no one on the other end to tell you that your call sounds like this. Hi, Jack. I would, and, uh, like, and I do get about one of those, I'd say every two weeks. So I know it's not always a signal fault. That's the one thing you can do to, to know that that's going on. I will tell you this. There are times when I get a call and it just has that stutter thing, and I really can't get it, but I do feel that it's a good question. If you call from a cell phone, you might get a text from me someday. It'll say something like, hey, this is Jack. Please recall your call that you made on such and such date. I'd like to use it, but it's unusable or something like that. I've done that for quite a few people. Don't do it all the time, but I try to help. Anyway, what are we going to do today? We're going to talk about thoughts for bug-out bag food beyond granola and jerky. And I'm going to tell you why I kind of stick to that most of the time, though. Uh, what is CCA wire, and why do I hate it? And I will invoke a now-famous famous quote from uh, expert council member Paul Wheaton. No, that's just marketing. That'll kind of lead you that way, if you know what CCA is. And if you don't, you will by the end of the day. Uh, next up, how do you place a value on a small business, especially one that's got kind of a lot of variables to it and some knowns and some real unknowns? Uh, I think it's a place a lot of people end up as they get older in life and they have a business they want to exit or you have a side hustle, you decide you don't want to keep going with it, but it's got something to it. and Maybe somebody else wants to take the reins, and how do you put a price on that? Uh, what does the future of the housing market look like? And I think this is tied right into the stock market and other things as well. Uh, I have a question on propagating an heirloom tree, so it's been in the family for 70 years. Uh, a word or two on safety with grills, and I think this is a good topic to bring up. You know, this is the survival podcast, and if you, uh, if you set yourself on fire, you're probably gonna break the rule, the first rule of survival, which is live, uh, and you might actually 
you know, get past that rule and kind of wish you were dead. Burns really suck, and burning down your house sucks, and things like that, and grills are fire, and fire, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. And then, why is Walmart installing facial recognition software? We'll talk about all of that today. Uh, before we do, I just have a quick reminder for you that uh, we, all, we have launched our Instagram channel. It's called It's a Jack Life. It really is a rebirth of the Jack Spirico Instagram that never had a single post on it. Uh, that was, I set it up in 2012 and never did nothing with it because I didn't really get Instagram. Dorothy's running it. She's doing a great job. But uh, if you guys want to win a free lifetime membership, and remember, if, if, you don't, if you already have one, or you just don't need it and you want money, you can sell it. And I guarantee you somebody will pay $300 bucks for it. So it's basically $300 bucks for a lifetime membership as far as I'm concerned. And they might pay you more because there's only one available and it goes to a bidding war. I don't you know. I don't know. It would be kind of interesting to see. But uh, all you got to do is you get on over to our Instagram and you'll find a post that's uh, got a lemonade thing, drink that I made. It's uh, adult beverage. With uh, it's made with ginger and lemon and lemon zest and and vodka and it's very good and uh, the question is what do we call it and there's about 80 people playing the game so far and if you just comment in there with what you think we should call it uh, whoever has the best name we will give a, a lifetime membership to and then there's some other things that you can do to to maybe win a one year membership or what have you and all you got to do is comment and maybe tag some friends on Instagram. So I will put a link in the show notes to that post for you today to make it easier to find. But it is on our Instagram, which again is, it's a jack life. And you don't want to play the game. If you're on Instagram, hey, follow us, man. You get to see the insanity and the normalcy of the Jack Spirit Go Life beyond just the podcast. Again, the uh, the channel is at it's a jack life. There's no little apostrophe in the it's because it's an Instagram channel and they don't do that. All right. With that, let's go ahead and just kind of dig on into it and get into today's show. First question is about food for your bug out bag. Let's go ahead and hear from that caller now. Hey, Jack. Daniel here. My question has to do with better food rations in your bug out bag. Details are I was going back and listening to your basic bug out show from, I think it was 1627, I believe, something like that. And, um, you know, you're talking about beef jerky and granola bars and nuts and such. And I was curious, um, if you do anything more advanced than that, other than maybe some mountain houses, which I know you mentioned, or if that's still pretty well what you keep in there. I really appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. So there's a, a few things to take into consideration, uh, here. And it's part of what makes it a really good question, honestly. Um, let's start out with something I don't usually do. Let's start out with not answering the direct question, and let's talk about a little bit of what this exposes. What this exposes is that the bug-out bag, and one for every member of the family, should be something that you have and you do, is a first step in the preparedness from even the concept of having to depart the home. It is not an end-all, be-all. It is designed to provide the base means of support for three days. And your bug-out plan, if you have to leave your home, those bags, yeah, the quick grab-and-go bags, but there should probably be at least a couple Rubbermaid totes or something like that packed with more supplies because your car can, can carry more than you can. Your, your bug-out bag is kind of that always-there support mechanism. 
that always has the things that you need that we can use in good times and bad. I've told stories before, like you know, pulling out insect repellent out of my bug out bag when it's in my truck at a friend's house when everybody's getting tore up with mosquitoes. So that's that's an example of how that type of preparedness doesn't just help you when you're on the lam or something like that. It helps you just day to day. That said, it is the first step toward getting ready to have to leave. And so we want to make it something that people actually can take with them and go. We don't want to put too much in money and materials into a bug out bag. I think it's a big mistake a lot of people make because if you go put three or four hundred bucks worth of gear into a bug out bag, first of all, you probably can't carry it very well. And what you're trying to do is become like a very bad long-range backpacker because good long-range backpackers carry ultralight equipment or at least very lightweight equipment. So you're trying to think that way and be surviving off the land and stuff like that. So what we need to do is, again, we have multiple layers of preparedness. And that bug out bag is let's get this group of people that have no freaking clue what to do, that may not go any further to at least be able to take care of themselves and their children for three days until they get their ass into a shelter and they get some help. That, that's what a bug out bag is. Now, we don't throw it away once we become more prepared because it's that. And all of us could end up in, in a worse way. But if we bug out, like I call them bug out, bug out boxes. Uh, Dorothy calls them to-go boxes, right, like from the store or from the restaurant. And, you know, we have several Rubbermaid tubs packed up with food, medical supplies, stuff like that, that just go straight in the back of the truck. Because even though we've done a lot of bug out trailers, I don't own one yet. I haven't built one yet. I haven't decided if I'm going to build one yet. And remember what I've advised you guys with bug out trailers. If you're not going to use it for camping and such like that, find another way to do this. Or buy a little flatbed trailer that folds up and you stick it in the back and you just throw a bunch of totes on it and throw some straps over it. Don't put a lot of money into building something if the only thing you're going to do is use it to haul shit when you leave. And, and kind of on that note, I think maybe Steve and I will address this on the next uh, episode. If you have a truck and you have a like farm, homestead, whatever, you could benefit from just a flatbed trailer. There's no reason that can't just be the thing you throw a whole bunch of shit on to get the hell out of Dodge. And and maybe that's another layer of bug out trailer thinking. All right. Anyway, so I wanted to frame it that way first, that, that you're only going to do so much with the bag. And so I'm only going to worry so much about the food in the bag. And the food in the bag has to be something that the food elsewhere doesn't. It doesn't just have to be shelf-stable and store well. Um, without refrigeration. It has to not melt in the heat. Right? I'm not going to store a Mars bar in my bug out bag in August. Remember Caddyshack with the, but was it the, not a Butterfinger, it was a, uh, the Baby Ruth bar in Caddyshack that everybody thought was a turd in the pool? You know, when they melt, they're a lot more like baby turd-like, and that's not good eats in your bug out bag, right? So the reason I like things like granola bars and beef jerky and stuff like that is your primary subsistence in a bug-out bag. And when I say granola bars, I'm talking about old-school granola bars, the hard ones, like Nature's Valley. You get two, and they're like a brick, you know. Um, those things, they, they tolerate that type of exposure without turning into mush or, or what have you. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that make sense, like because you're not trying to eat healthy. You're trying to put enough calories in you. 
you know, and you might even be in a situation where your blood sugar plummets and you want to jack your blood sugar back up a little bit uh, if you haven't eaten. So candies and stuff like that do make sense, but you have to think about the fact that this thing might sit in your car for six hours, eight hours a day sometimes. Now, personally, with me, when I, would, when I had a job and I'd go to work, I had a bag that came into the office every day that just looked like a work bag. It was basically a, a backpack um, that was basically a, a bug-out bag light. So I had a, a smaller kit bag didn't have any food in it at all. Maybe I think I had a couple packs of beef jerky in there as a, a more reserved for me if I had the munchies than anything else. But it was more like all of the hardware, and it stayed in the trunk of the car. Um, and then upstairs, I would have you know the you kind of the top layer of a regular bug out bag would all fit within a very small uh, backpack about the size a kid would take to high school. Except this one was designed for a laptop and all, and. I'll just say a Keltec, uh, a Sub 2000 folded up, fitting there real nice too. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and anybody that saw that, any of my employees or anything that saw that, it all was just that's that's Jack's bag. And I think that's a great way to go with kind of modularizing things, where you can have a kit bag and a backpack, and you still have to limit that food. Now, here's some things you can add to a bug out bag to to go a little bit further. Than the mountain house. Because the mountain house stuff, the reason I said that in that episode is you go to the store, you buy it, you stick it in there. As long as you have water and a way to heat it up, you're good. If you can put hot water in a mountain, pow- mountain house pouch, you, you can eat. And, and then I didn't have to go into a big, long, laborious thing, but I like to build basically my own versions using dehydrated vegetables, bullions, and you know canned meat or meat products. For instance, I have a, a vegetable blend. It's like corn, carrots, peas, celery, stuff like that, that I'll put in a, 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 a vacuum-sealed bag. And I'll take a, a small little bag, like something like a, about the size of what like a dope dealer would use. And in that bag, I'll stick a bullion cube, a beef bullion cube, and I'll seal that up, and I'll stick it, I'll double bag that, because I don't want that getting into uh, and, and getting moist and causing problems with the, the, the vegetable mix. And then, like, minute rice will be in its own little bag sealed up like that, and then it all goes into a vacuum seal bag, and then you vacuum seal that. And you've got, like, a beef vegetable soup right there. Well, you can do things like, you know, I talk about beef turkey and all, but I can't think of who makes them. Now, Jack's Links, I think, they make this thing called a peppered, kippered beef snack, and they make a plain old kippered beef snack, and I, I like those. They're, they're not great, but they're okay. Well, if you take one of those big kippered beef snacks and you cut it up into a bunch of chunks and throw it into that beef soup, it's pretty good. And so I have some stuff like that as well, but here's the issue. Water is weight. At eight and a third pounds a gallon, or something like that, eight and a quarter, eight and a third pounds a gallon. You can only carry so much water. And anything you cook that requires water takes some of that water away and it adds weight to what you need to carry. And anything that you have to prepare adds time to the situation. So if I'm really relying on the bug out bag, I'm probably mobile. I'm probably pushed for time. So the bug out bag might be. I see some shit's going sideways, and I'm away from home, and I'm getting home, and like I don't have time to stop for something to eat, and I didn't eat that day. I pull stuff out of that, and it's something I'm going to eat while I'm driving to come get my wife and my animals to get the hell out of here. Or I'm stuck at work for a, for a day because some weird shit happens or something like that. You, you, to, to make this work for you, you have to take your mind out of the world that I always I point to with this is the, the Red Dawn mindset. 
And the Red Dawn mindset is not just about the Russians or the Koreans or the Chinese or whoever invade America. It's the concept of this long-term wilderness survival mentality. That is not what bug-out bags are for. So we don't need to worry about upping the, the gourmet level of the food in the bag. What we want is food that's able to be eaten on the go, stores well, doesn't go to crap on us if it gets too hot or too cold in the car, and puts calories and nutrition in us and has some level of you know, hunger cessation and also just comforting. You know, I, I'll tell you, we, I think one of the best sources of mobile calories... And blood sugar equalizing when you, you haven't eaten in a while is things like peanut butter crackers and stuff like that. That's why we rely on them with citizens assisting citizens doing relief work. Sit down, have a bottle of water and a pack of crackers. Just think and get your shit together, put some calories in, you get hydrated. The problem with those are they don't do well. They don't do well in a bug out bag if you at any point are going to have that thing sitting in a hot car. So we relegate stuff like a couple boxes of those into one of the to-go boxes, as Dorothy calls them. And then you have a bug-out strategy that even if you're not doing a trailer or whatever, you know, a list, two big Rubbermaid tubs and bug-out bags for every member of the family, you can get by in about 99% of the situations you'd ever be in. So just kind of dial it back to thinking of that bag as a piece of the plan. Now, when people are brand new and they're just building that bag, that's when they go overboard. So you have to say, like, let's limit this to three days and not three days at, at you know, the, the Hilton uh, Head Hotel. Let's three days of just being okay. And then let's expand that strategy. So when the person feels that, like, I don't really have enough here, great. Let's put together the bug out trunk and the bug out plan to go with all of this stuff. I hope that helps. Let's take another one. Yeah, Jack, this is Alan. I have a uh, question for the expert council member, uh, Stephen Harris. And my question is concerning, uh, I was looking for some jumper cables and I come across something called CCA. Uh, it's called copper clad aluminum wire. And, uh, you know, I found that in searching for jumper cables and heavy duty wiring for my solar, uh, setup. And uh, I just didn't know if this stuff was any good for uh, anything but scrap iron because I didn't know if you could solder to it, uh, how good it would hold up as far as on a solar uh, setup or, uh, you know, if you tried to use it on, on your backup battery system, but, you know, corrosion be a, a problem with the aluminum wire. Um I just didn't know exactly what the pros and cons were with this uh, new, uh, they just call it CCA in the descriptions on, on a lot of the stuff they show on Amazon and stuff like that. They don't tell you that it's copper clad aluminum. Uh, just uh, your thoughts on it and uh, Stephen's thoughts on it, and I uh, appreciate all you do for us. Uh, thank you very much. Have a good day. So let's talk about what CCA wire is. And as I said in the intro, to me, no, that's just marketing. Copper-clad aluminum is aluminum wire, and it can be solid conductor or stranded conductor, that has a coating of copper, a very, very thin coating of copper on the outside of the aluminum. So what is it? It's aluminum wire. It's aluminum wire. And if the application you're using... You wouldn't use aluminum wire in it 
Don't use copper-clad aluminum because it's aluminum wire. It's like buying a gold-plated aluminum necklace as an alternative to buying a gold necklace. It's, it's that bad. Now, that doesn't mean it won't work for anything at all. It doesn't mean it, it, it's not useful in some way, shape, or form. But if you wouldn't wire something up with aluminum wire, don't wire it up with copper-clad aluminum wire. Uh, most of the people that you know put a little bit of effort, just even a little bit of effort, into an audio system, like a car audio system, won't use it for speaker wire. So running, you know, significant voltage across it in a a uh, a solar based system with AC to DC conversion and all of that going on, I wouldn't do it. the 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 saving grace of it would be that in an application like you're talking about, it, it would be stationary. You know, if you did this and you put, if you put this shit running voltage across it. In a vehicle, you are making a dumb decision. And you can go to YouTube and you can find person after person that did it with smoked insulation off wires and fires happening in their vehicles and stuff like that. And part of that reason is that if you take two wires that are multi-stranded wires of the same exact size, and one's copper and one's aluminum, and two people sit there and start bending it back and forth, they're just about the same rate, the same speed, kind of like they're doing a little pantomime with each other. And they just sit there and do it. That aluminum one will break far quicker than the copper. The copper stands with being moved around and be, you know, it takes longer bending it back and forth to, to break a piece of copper and a piece of aluminum. So the fact that it ain't moving, would I do that for my jumper cables? No. And the only reason that people consider aluminum wire, and I don't even want to call it copper clad aluminum wire, the only reason people consider uh, aluminum wire painted with a thin layer of copper is because it's cheaper. There are certain things that you don't cheap out on. And copper wire seems expensive. And if you're wiring a house end-to-end -end everything in it, and you look at the cost difference, or if you're wiring a computer network, it can add up. But when you're talking about putting in 20 feet of wire, I don't care if it costs $3 more a foot. It's 60 bucks. Why would you try to save 60 bucks on a critical piece of infrastructure? And I know I'm not, I'm not going Harris on you, even though you broke the rules. You don't call questions in for the expert counsel. You email the questions in for the expert counsel with TSP expert in the subject line, and I forward them to the expert counsel. Steve got a pretty heavy call volume, and I don't need him for this one. And I know he would go off on a total rant. And I'm not going off on a Harris rant, especially on you. So it's not like putting you, because you're asking a legitimate question. But what I'm saying is, once you do the math that way, why would you ever make a decision like that over even 60 bucks, which would be on the high end, when it comes down to something that's a critical piece of infrastructure for something you're going to rely on, either in an off-grid home or an off-grid sustainability situation? And the answer is you shouldn't. This is this is worse than buying the cheap garden hose. Like I always, one of my one of my things that always be frugal, never be cheap. And the best thing I know to compare that to is a garden hose. You buy a cheap garden hose, you will be getting rid of it at the end of the year. You will use a lot of cuss words during that year of use of it, and you'll hate it. And it will eventually fail and break. It will kink. It sucks. You buy a good garden hose that costs three times as much. 
and you have it for 10 years or more, and if anything happens, it's probably your wife ran over with a lawn tractor. Ask me how I know. And you put a new connector on it, and you keep using it. So that's the fact. Just no. Don't use it. And I say don't use it at all, but if you are considering it, ask yourself, would I use aluminum wire in this application? And if the answer is no, don't use copper-clad aluminum because it's aluminum wire. That's what it is. Let's take another one. Jack, Roger McDowell here in central Kentucky. I have a good problem. Um, I have built a business. Uh, I am retired. I have built a side business where I take uh, bourbon barrels from a local distillery. I clean them up. I sandblast their logo in the top or the belly and take them back to them, and they sell them in their visitor center. This has become uh, almost a full-time job for me. I would like to exit the business. Uh, but I would like to sell the business. Um, question one, how do I evaluate this business? I don't have a contract. Um, so this comp- this distillery could say any day I go in there, they could say, hey, we don't need your business anymore. So I don't have a contract. Um, but I probably do about $500 a week uh, in gross sales with a, probably a uh, – 70% profit margin. Uh, I was wondering how to evaluate this business, and if I wanted to sell it, there is some um, uh, um, specialized equipment needed. Uh, I could show somebody exactly how to do everything, um, the whole nine yards. Uh, but then if once I have evaluated it, how would I advertise this business for sale? So whatever your thoughts would be appreciated. Uh, I'd like to exit this business because, you know, it's cutting into my, my fun things, my gardening and my hunting. Um, I'd like to uh, to get out of it with a little cash in my pocket. Thanks. Bye. The, uh, there, there's, there's three primary ways that you would value a business, and you can also hybridize these. And then there's a fourth way that usually pertains to larger businesses than what you're talking about. But but and, and a lot of times the fourth way is not really selling the business, but selling a portion of the business. So you're selling to an investor to put capital into the business and be now a partner one way or another. But let, let, let's kind of talk about them. The first one is just a flat asset-based business uh, model. I don't really like this one unless the business has significant assets. And, and and this is basically a capital valuation. Assets equals liabilities plus capital, right? So we take the assets in the business. Let's say that, and I don't know, have any idea what your equipment's worth, and I'm going to throw a larger number than I think it's worth on here just to make it a little bit more clear to people on a more heavily asset-based business. Let's say you had $150,000 worth of total equipment in this business that was germane to the business. So if you happen to have, like, a fine piece of art in your office, and you're saying, well, that comes with the No, I mean, that's not really a business asset. It might belong to the business, but it would be better to break that off and sell that to an art collector, right? So I'm talking about equipment and tools and if you own a, a building, let's say, or something like that. So now you, what you're saying is this stuff, you know, is, it, let's say, worth $100,000. So the business is worth $100,000 because the asset, but you say the business, let's say, owes twenty grand in, in liabilities against those assets. And you're not going to extinguish the liabilities. The buyer is going to acquire the liabilities along with the assets, which is generally how it works. Then you would put a value on the business of $80,000. Probably doesn't work for you, 
but it is a it is a, a difficult metric for a buyer to argue with because if you're going to go in this business, you're going to need this stuff, and this stuff is going to cost you this much, even if it's been depreciated over a period of time, even if it's an older piece of equipment. It's still going to cost you this much to go out and buy this equipment in this shape for this market or to have this type of a building or whatever it is. So that's asset-based. Uh, the next is market-based, and this is going to be almost impossible in your situation, and very seldom is it really possible in most small businesses. This is the same way we value a house. We look for comparable businesses that have recently been sold and say this type of business at this size and this stage of its existence, uh, three similar businesses have sold for X, Y, and Z, and then we do some factoring. Well, this one had larger contracts, this one had more assets, but in the end, you know, Based on their average and what we have, our business would be worth $110,000 because these three businesses, they maybe sold one for $300, one for $60, but when we factor against them, that's about what this is worth. Exactly how they do a home valuation when they're going to sell a home. Uh, next is an income-based method. And I'm going to give you an article uh, that's on, on Patriot Software's website that, that goes through these three. And they just call it income-based. I refer to this particular model as near-term income when I'm talking about it. And the reason I say that is because it's generally speaking a one-year income expectation of the business or less. So if the business, if your business did, let's say, $50,000 two years ago, and it did $60,000 last year, And your your progression is that right now this year it's probably going to do about sixty eight thousand dollars this year. Then you could price that business somewhere at sixty eight seventy two seventy four thousand dollars because it's a reasonable expectation that over the next twelve month cycle that's about the the average amount of money this business would do. And and all of those kind of work with a loan officer if you're trying to get financing to grow your business. And they all kind of work with a loan officer if the person you're selling to is going to get a loan. And that's kind of what we rely on. The fourth method that can apply to small businesses that generally doesn't, especially in a business with the issues you mentioned, is a, 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 a multiplier or a multi-year income base. Uh, two times earnings, three times earnings, something like that. So the person's buying the business. And you're, you're leaving it all behind. So it's reasonable to say, well, I want two years of, of historical income or three years of historical income. This is generally with more established businesses that do have things like larger customer bases and contracts and things like that where the, the person can literally take it to the bank. That this is in, in, Unless I screw it up, this is the earnings I can expect. If I just do just as good as he did, this is what I can expect. And I can grow the business beyond that because he wants to leave and I'm an up-and-comer. This, again, generally is a little bit larger businesses, but not necessarily larger with employees or anything, but larger in number of customers, size of the customer base, guaranteed contracts, or contracts that at least have a certain time. You have a one-year contract. Well, I know that contract is solid till the end. I might even know that if the customer wants out, this is their exit cost, things like that. This would be very much if it was a leasing company you had that was leasing buildings, right? This is a really solid model in that because we have historical data, we have a solid underlying asset, 
and we have leases to the existing customer base. We also have data that shows that when a building comes up for lease, it generally takes four months to put a new tenant in. So we can, we can come up with a fair valuation of it. So those are all the ways that you do it. Your problem is, like you said, you have no contracts with these people, and you didn't give me any information like how much money we're talking about and what the value of the tools are and things like that. So with all of that in mind, this is what I'd like you to do for an exercise for me. I'd like you to take, we've got a weekend coming up, you know, Friday's tomorrow, and then we roll into the weekend. I want you to take this weekend, and I want you to think to yourself, self, what number that if somebody walked up to me and handed me a check for it right now, would I just say, take it all, it's yours, and I'd walk away? What number is that? Now, temper that number with reality. Because I guarantee you, if I walked up to you and said, I'll give you $10 million to walk away, you'd be like, okay, bye, give me the check, I'm out of here. You can even call me. I'll answer the phone for you. Thanks for the $10 million. Like, so there is that extravagant number. <clears throat> But let's, let's start working that number up. So you can go to a number. And again, I don't know what your business is worth. I don't know what your earnings are. I don't know what your expenses are. But let's just say $20,000. If somebody offered you $20,000 for the business right now, if your initial response is I'd tell them to go pound sand, uh, and I was going to say a different word that started with an F and an, a Y, um, but you were going to tell them that, Uh, then they, then you know that's not a number that works for you, at least, in the, at least until you do an evaluation of the business. Then say to yourself, okay, well, what about $30,000? Yeah, still pounds at $40,000. No, I'm going to make more than that this year. Uh, I need to, you know, $50,000, $60,000. And just keep asking yourselves numbers, going up in $5,000 to $10,000 increments until you start to really think, like, I... You have to really consider that. Write that number down. And that becomes your target. And then you can say to yourself, self, how do I present this business so that I can get this amount of money for it? Because that's really where you're at. Because you can do all the stuff I just said, come up with a valuation that's, that's below what you're willing to accept. And you'd rather just work another year than take that number. And then it doesn't matter what you come up with. But if the number you come up with is equal to or greater than your walk-away number, then that becomes the number that you need to run with as you try to find a buyer. I would also advise you to possibly consider retaining the business and selling a portion of it to someone that then operates the business. This would be a way to keep a residual income, gain a lump sum from someone that has skin in the game. And then you have to decide, do you want to hold the majority portion or a minority portion of the business? And you come up with a way that you get compensated on annual profit based on ownership stake. There's, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. It sounds like you have a system down. You have enough work to keep somebody working. It sounds like you don't want an employee. So if you have an investor who becomes an employee of the business, they are their own supervisor. And you may have luck that way, and then you create a residual income stream. And if they happen to build the business significantly to a point where they want to sell out, then you have a chance to capitalize on the business again. Uh, that said, I understand totally want to just and clean those hands and be done with it. I get that. But I would at least consider that, as, you know, If you look around the area you're in, you might find some young people that really want kind of to come up in a business. And, and I would not do this. I would not give somebody a promise of equity. 
for work now. I would make them put either some skin in the game, or I would say, if you take this business over and you meet these metrics, I will give you 10% of equity at the end of the first year. We'll sit down at the end of that year, and if you meet metrics again, I'll give you 20% of the equity. And you can let them buy the equity through operating the business. But if you do that, you give them zero coming in. There's a lot of different ways to do this. And, and some of them don't involve a complete walk-away model. They involve becoming a more passive partner that still has cash flow from the business and either makes money up front or takes the majority of the profit up front. If the cash flow is sufficient to do that, if the guy's going to work his ass off and make less than minimum wage under your terms, well, that's not going to work. But you can put him in as an employee on a salary or an incentive-based compensation plan that's not tied to his equity stake. And then slowly let the equity take over the income. There's a lot of ways to do this, but you got to figure out what works best for you. I know that's a lot of different angles at it, but I wanted to give them all to you so that they help the most people. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Andrew from West Michigan. And I was wondering your thoughts on another possible housing market collapse. It seems like housing market prices are going through the roof again, and lenders are getting a little bit looser with their lending practices. I was wondering if there's anything you're doing to prepare for something like that happening and if there's anything you would suggest other people do to make sure they're ready for something like that. Hey, Ray, love the show. And this is a quick question for you. Have a great day. So let's start out with one of Spearco's rules of life. Everything is a cycle. Everything is a cycle. Housing prices go up, and people think houses always go up, and they don't. And over the history of the uh, of the modern world, housing prices have gone up. They've gone into uh, peaks, and those peaks have leveled off, and eventually those peaks have come down some or a lot, and then they level off, and they go back up. And the best strategy, the best strategy for a home buyer is to plan on only buying a home when they expect to be in that home for at least 10 years. And you almost can't lose. As long as you buy a home that you can afford, and nothing catastrophic happens to where you get kicked out of the house because you, you, you know, you're not trying to sell because you can't pay the mortgage. The only way you're selling is because you got a better job offer or something like that, and then you got to weigh the thing. But if, you, if, you, you know, if you're going to be in a house for 10 years, if you look at... The up and down of the market, you were almost okay no matter when you bought. We're right now at about 10 years from the big crash. Okay? We, we really are. And the bottom of the housing market was actually about 2014. It really wasn't 2008, 2009. That was when, when you, if you look at a graph of housing in the United States, you see that big slam. But then you see the, the, the housing market just say the slow, steady decline all the way to about 2014, rebounded a little bit, and then all of a sudden, about 2015, 2016, it starts to really come back. And, and I said this would happen, and it had to. And let's talk about why. Housing got so expensive so fast and rebounded so quickly Went once that started. When the market crashed, new housing building went to shit, and there was no, new, there was no inventory. So once there was a recovery, there was a race for the available housing. 
What's happened now is a combination of things. One, markets, if left alone, correct themselves. So you can only push real estate so high until you start to outprice the class of house for the class of person. And I know people don't like when you say class of person because it's derogatory. There's, there, I'm telling you, there are classes of people just on income. It doesn't mean that you're better than me or I'm better than you because I make more money. But there, when it comes to asset purchasing, a person that makes $200,000 a year is in a different income class and therefore a different real estate class than a person that makes $100,000 or fifty. And if you are in denial of that, you are a whiny little, you know, snowflake that needs to go off to your friggin' safe space closet and pet a kitten and eat a crayon. I mean, seriously, right? That's a fact. And so when you look at houses that are, let's say, the classic three to four bedroom, two bath American house that in this market are selling somewhere between $150,000 and $210,000, there's a limit to the class of people that buy that house as to how much they will pay for it. Some of it's what they can afford. Some of it's where they just go, no, I'm not doing it. And and the, what, what alters that is manipulated interest rates. And if we push interest rates low enough, when people buy that $190,000 house, they don't even think about an exit strategy like you're doing asking this question. They're just thinking, can I pay the mortgage? And is it the same or less than my rent for a smaller place? Well, okay, then I'm buying. Well, when they cross that line where that stops being the case, and as renters lose tenants and begin to adjust rents downward to stop the blood loss and win in new tenants, those two markets equalize. So then when we look at the trend right now, new housing starts have been down for the last two quarters, and the housing market has retracted a little bit in the past two quarters in spite of a booming economy. Why? Well, it can't just keep going up. It, 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 I am actually, I'm not bullish on houses this minute, but I feel more comfortable with that slight decline than I would if it didn't happen. Because millions of people, just like my son, made that leap from renter to homeowner in the last three years. It's the millennials. It's the upper-aged millennials in their late 20s and early 30s that said, it's time for me to grow up, put my big boy pants on, and own a house. And the renters are, you know, the rental company is squeezing me, and if I can get in a house for 50 bucks more, 50 bucks less, and own a house and start building equity like my dad and my granddad, I'm going to do it. There's only so many of those people. They only buy so many houses, and you only build so many more new houses before... They all have one now, and there's a time lag between when they buy and when they say, hey, we're making a lot more money now. Let's keep up with the Joneses. They moved over to Parker Street. Let's move over to Parker Street, too. And during that time lag, that market has to – so you either have the, the, the pending downturn of the market or you have what we hope for. Those hope and, and get are not the same thing, but what we're hoping for – is a normalization. It is not normal for real estate to increase in price by 20% a year every year, year over year. That's not normal. Appreciation in real estate should be somewhere around, you know, real inflation, 3, 4, 5%. And if it went 20 for two years, having it come down 4 or 5% before it goes back into that state is, is, is acceptable and normal and what you should expect from a business cycle. 
And again, if we're thinking, I'm going to buy affordable, I'm going to buy a house that I can take care of and look after, I'm going to have enough money that if I lost a job, we can stay in that house for three to six months before I even worry. Then when you have one of these corrections, it doesn't matter, and here's why. Right now, the market has kind of gotten back to where it was when the collapse happened in some markets, and some others were actually up. But let's just say that you bought 10 years ago, and all of a sudden your house is worth what you paid for it. I mean, you literally timed it the worst you could for your market, and you decide after 10 years you want to sell your house. You're coming out with money. You've got equity. You've got 10 years of mortgage payments. And the last three actually started to build it up quite significantly. And you were going to live somewhere. You can't look at the mortgage payments that you made, etc., as though they're 100% invested. You have to say, if I was settling as a renter, you know what would, it, what would have been the cheapest reasonable rent I could have? And then you have to look at your investment. Let's say that it was $200 bucks less. It's $200 a month for 10 years. And I think you'll find in almost every instance you can get that money back out of your house plus some money to go into a new down payment or, or whatever for a larger home if that's what you want. And if you were smart and you didn't buy a house that somebody made perfect and you took 10 years to fix it up and do all the things that I teach in my method of real estate, which is you know really more for people like the guy asking the question, not somebody that wants to flip houses every other day, but for people that want to live in their home and build equity in their home, and if they ever need to exit that home, they want to take a good chunk out of it, and they want to be able to sell it quickly, no matter where the market is, then you're going to do even better. You know, if you bought the house and had mellow cabinets and freaking uh, low-end countertops, and you paid as you went, and you put in, you know, at least base-level granite, you put in nice, you know, builder-grade cabinets, that alone is, you're going to get a return of investment beyond what you put into it, plus you used it. Let's say you do that in your second and third year. Well, you've got to use that for seven years, eight years. This is the strategy. Because what you can't do, what you can't do is avoid the cycle. Everything's a cycle. The market's going to go up and down. Now, The market as a whole, not the housing market, markets as a whole are on the uh, stock market specifically, the longest bull run in history. We've never had the market sustained growth for so long, ever. Everything's a cycle. Everybody's calling for a recession next year. I have my doubts about that. We are at a unique point in a cycle where we may be able to sustain the growth for longer or, given all of the flux and all of the new technologies and all the things that are going on and all of the optimism, we may reach a state of more of a normalization. This is where you stop seeing huge gains in your portfolio, but you see reasonable gains. You see acceptable gains, and you see in oftentimes acceptable losses that are more than offset by the gains. And then how long can we maintain that? What we do know, the market will go into a steep decline at some point, and so will the housing market, and so will every other market because everything's a cycle. You have to think in a long enough cycle with a strategy that insulates you from the inevitability of the cycle. Because you really don't know what's going to happen next or when it's going to happen. I'm not worried about seeing things go off the cliff in the next quarter. 
what 2019 will bring? I'm not sure yet. There's a lot of things we do not know yet. When we see come the reports coming out from developing markets and industries and the cyclical markets around the world going into the third and fourth quarter, it's going to tell us a lot about 2019 that we just don't know yet. And people call me Spiricodamus, but I'm not Spiricodamus. I am a good analyst. And I can only analyze the data that's available. And right now, I'm at a point of the markets as a whole are either going to plateau for a while, which would be good, or they are going to go into significant decline. I don't think you, I don't think you see a stock market decline on any real level. Now, if the market drops three points tomorrow, I'm not saying I'm wrong. Because when you look at the totality of the last year, two years, It's insignificant. You know, I'm talking about a 2008-style event. That's, that's not coming until after the election. Trump will buy his re-election if he has to. He'll do whatever he has to. He'll, he can't, presidents cannot give the stock market you know, five years of longevity of upward pressure. They can give it a few months. Real easy, because the market is reactive. So, anyway, and it, it only reacts for so long before it corrects as well. Everything's a cycle. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. What's the best way to uh, get a fruit tree that's probably close to 75, 80, 100 years old uh, to get growing from seed? I've got a background is I've got a pear and an apricot tree that uh, was planted by my great-grandfather. It still produces fruit every couple of years, and I think it would be really cool to uh, get a couple – Uh, seedlings to grow, and I just want to know the best way to do that. Uh, I'm in Kansas, and uh, they did not put on fruit this year, so we're hoping they do next year. Anyway, if it's a lost cause, don't worry about answering it, but if there's a good way to do it, I'd love to know. Thanks. Bye. Well, one thing you may want to do, you know, you say they produce some years and not others, and, and, and trees do that. They run through cycles, etc. But a tree that old has probably had a lot of buildup around the root crown and things like that, so you may want to get over... Uh, or just go to Google and search for Dirt Doctor Sick Tree Treatment. A lot of times these older trees, if you go with the Dirt Doctor's treatment, which will be removing carefully, probably with an air spade, some of the dirt from around the root crown, exposing more of the roots if that's necessary, aerating the area, and applying certain fertilizers and amendments, uh, a lot of times some of these older trees will really kind of come into almost a whole second life of beauty. The fact that they're 75 to 100 years old, And he said, that's a big, that's, that's a lot of unknown in there how old they really are. But the fact that they're that old um, tells me that they're probably all full-size trees. I mean, they, they, both of these trees are full-size. There wasn't a whole lot of dwarf action going on a uh, hundred years ago with trees. People put in full-size trees, or the, what they would have called a semi-dwarf back then was what we would generally see as a full-size tree. So they're probably pretty big trees. There is a very good chance, though, that they are grafted varieties, and you can actually do some research, and if you find out whatever the most popular pear and apricots were from the Stark Brothers catalog at the time, that's probably what they are. It's not a guarantee. It's just a, it's a pretty good probability, or if you can find out what variety they are, that can help you with some decisions to make going forward. I've seen a lot of old pear trees in Pennsylvania growing up as a kid. Really old trees. Huge trees. 
And most of them are Bartlett, and Bartlett will propagate from seed and, and, and stay pretty much true to type. And a lot of those old Bartlett trees were either planted from seed or they were bought as seedlings. Apricot, I have no idea what you're looking at there. And a tree that big and that old, there's probably no way to determine whether it's a grafted variety or not. So there'd be nothing wrong with, if you get some fruit off it and you want to plant some seedlings uh, doing that. Your pear is really straightforward. Uh, get some damp, not wet, uh, perlite, vermiculite, or even just paper towel. Harvest your seeds, put them in that in a Ziploc bag, and put them in the refrigerator and watch it. If it starts to get any mold on it or anything like that, replace the moist material with fresh moist material. Plant it early spring and you know, grow it out to a point where you're comfortable putting it in the ground and it'll grow. And that's, that's pretty much all there is to it. And with a pair of that old, you'll probably get something that you'll be happy to have. With apricots, um, the process for doing it from seed is very similar. You know, clean the seeds off, stratify them in the refrigerator. You get, if apricots, peaches, etc., stone fruits didn't germinate, unless you crack the seed out of them, like some people think, they wouldn't propagate hardly ever in the wild than they do. However, they do germinate much better if you open them. So an apricot, a peach, etc., is kind of in the same family an almond is. So if you, if you look at the pit, from a peach or an apricot, it often looks a lot like an almond. And just like an almond where you have to crack it open to get the nut out, you're better off cracking them open and getting the seed out. My personal opinion, though, is you're better off stratifying them in the pit, so lightly moist in a paper towel jar, vermiculite, perlite, something like that, stratify it at least 60 days in the refrigerator, and then... You know, store more than you need in case you mess them up. Because you mess them up, open them, crack them open, and then plant them, and then they'll grow. Now, what you'll end up with if you do that, I don't know. If both of these trees were grown from seed, you might end up with something fairly similar in fruit type. But you'll definitely end up with a true result of the parent tree. Now, if you want the exact result of the parent tree, you want it to be the same tree, then you need to get yourself some rootstock and graft onto the tree. And you'll want to take your scion, which is the, the, the wood that you're grafting to the rootstock while the tree is dormant. And I can't really explain how to do a graft on the air. We've had Nick Ferguson do it before, but there's a million YouTube videos on this. So you'll, you'll, you'll look for a, a good grafting stock. And uh, with pear, you could even do this. You could get some seed, and actually the, the apricot and the pear both, you could plant some from seed, make that your rootstock, grow that out a year, and then the following year take some cuttings of scion wood and graft them to that rootstock. So it's truly all from the parent tree, but then the fruit will be exactly the same fruit. It's a clone. And I would say try both. Try both. You know, get some, get some uh, rootstock this, this winter. From a supplier, Rain Tree Nursery, etc., a supplier that's compatible, and graft a whole bunch of them because it's cheap to do, and then start growing them out. And then next season, if those trees produce, you can grow more rootstock and do more grafts. And then you can always grow from seed and just plant those and see how they do and, and spread them out as many places as possible because someone's been in the family that long, you want to mitigate your risk. 
And then here's the other cool thing. Let's say you go somewhere and you buy some rootstock, and one of those grafts takes for you, and it grows, and it produces fruit in, let's say, three or five years or six years, and that you lose the mother tree, but you have that grafted tree. That seed that comes out of that graft is the same seed that would have came out of that mother tree. So it's a lot of different ways you can mitigate things there, but there's, there's your basic answer. Let's take another one. But definitely do something. Definitely do something. Don't let something that's been in your family that long go away. It's too cool a story. It's too, it's too much of a chance to hand down to future generations, your grandkids, etc., something really, really cool. The great-great-grandpa planted this tree's mother tree, and it's been in our family for four, five, six generations. That's a pretty amazing thing to think about. Okay, let's take another one. Uh, this one has to do with uh, not blowing up your house or your face with your grill. Hey, Jack, this is Max in St. Louis. Uh, I just wanted to give out a little reminder for people to keep your grills clean. I uh, had an older gas grill that I probably should have replaced maybe last summer, but I was trying to nurse it along and uh, been lazy, hadn't cleaned it or dumped the grease tray. And so one of those days in a hurry, I, I goosed the burners right off the bat and kind of forgot about it and came back out to a full-on fireball. The whole thing went up. Uh, luckily, I was able to, to turn off the gas and, and kind of get the fire put out pretty quick. Um, so nobody got hurt or anything. The grills could put, um, but uh, if it had been on a you know apartment deck or up next to my house, um, who knows what could have happened? It, it probably could have really uh, caught something else on fire. So uh, just a reminder to everyone to uh, learn from from my mistake and uh, keep your grills clean and uh, dump the grease tray and don't uh, don't get lazy and forget about it. Uh, so just wanted to put out a little PSA there, and uh, hope everyone had a great summer. And, uh, Jack, thanks for all you do, and uh, we'll see you later. Bye. Well, he's absolutely right, and I'd like to add a few things. Number one, I'm not saying you cannot catch a Weber grill on fire, but if you're ever going to make an investment in a new gas grill and you're going to step up and spend more money than you know the cheapest one that they have on the floor at Walmart – you might really consider stepping up to the Weber. The reason I've always loved the Weber gas grills, and you can do this if you go to any place that sells grills, and even someone like Charbroil makes a pretty good grill. But if you open up the, the bottom and you get up under there and you look, you'll see that the way the drip tray is designed, that there's uh, a, a big metal plate that goes right up, almost, almost touches the burners in every grill that I've seen other than Weber. And then it'll come down to a little point, and then that'll go into your drip tray or something like that. When you look at a Weber, you'll see a metal frame that is maybe got an inch and a half of, of like, a, like a picture frame thickness all the way around that you're looking through up to where the burners are. And suspended off of that down a good eight inches, you'll see a very similar truncated metal plate like the other grills have, and it's got that separation. So your, your drippings drip all the way down there, and they are significantly separated from the burner. And so if you get a little bit of drip and residue and stuff on the burner itself, and that burner catches on fire, and there's residue on the drip tray below it, it doesn't catch the whole thing on fire in general. This is one reason, it's not the only reason, but it's one reason I'm a huge fan when it comes to gas grills of Weber grills, and it's why I invested in one for my outdoor kitchen. Uh, they also have a really great... You know, performance as well, but we're not talking about performance here, we're talking about safety. Definitely clean grills off. Um, get one of the Gwen uh, grill brushes I recommend at T Spaz, G V E N. Uh, because another thing with safety with grills, you clean a grill, you use old school 
uh, brush and a little piece of that metal gets in your food and you eat it, you end up in the ER with, uh, with metal in your intestines or worse. Um, that's another safety thing. I'm big on when you're done cooking, run that grill hot for a while and don't run it hot with the door closed like he's talking about and walk away. Burn off. Whatever came off that latest, burn that shit off while the grill's hot and it doesn't have time to gum up and consolidate in one place. Clean the surface. If it gets older, you know, take it, take the burners out once in a while. Clean things out from underneath of it. I completely agree with that. The number one way this happens, though, is exactly what this guy did. People want to get the grill hot fast. They turn it on. They turn it up to high. They throw the lid down. They walk away and they open a beer and then the wife talks to them about this and the kid needs that and they get distracted in two minutes becomes 20 and you come back and there's billowing smoke coming out from under a grill. Turning the gas off is the first step is definitely what you want to do. You're going to be tempted to open it. If you must, get a pole of about 10 feet long and open it from away from it in the app because you know it's going to burn off faster as a thought and it will and it will start reducing the temperature of like holding all of those flames in it, it's a bad situation you don't want to be in um, really bad so like avoiding it is really the, the better choice you don't need to close your grill down to heat it up it does make it get hot faster but it it, it, it ups the potential for this problem and the big thing is don't heat your grill unsupervised. Watch it, because that way if you're going to start to have this problem, you'll start to see it smoke. You'll start to see some flare-ups and stuff, and you can shut that out, because a lot of times what would become a big problem, you see a flare-up, you just shut the burner off, and then that'll just burn itself out. It'll just consume whatever that fuel is and burn it off of the burner, and you can light it back up. And yeah, you might take another 10 minutes to make dinner tonight, But you, you, you won't end up with the fire department coming. You won't end up in a burn unit. Some other things to think about. I've never done a show on grill safety. I probably could do a whole show on this, but gas grills can become bombs. There was a woman, I think she was a newscaster for Little Rock, we saw on TV one time when we were living up in Arkansas, and um, she had just come back from like nine months of not being on the air. And she spent six of them in the hospital with skin grafts and stuff like that. What happened to her, she had her gas grill running, and the wind came up and blew it out. And she didn't realize how long the grill had been off, not burning, but the gas is still running. She went and pushed the igniter, and it blew the top off the grill and set her on fire. Giant fireball. You don't do this. I don't care if you think it's only been out for 10 seconds. If your grill was lit, And the, and the flame went out for any reason, you shut it completely off, you open the lid, and you wait a couple minutes. Then, without turning it back on, you go ahead and hit that igniter a couple times. Then you turn on one burner, on low or whatever, high enough to light, and you ignite it. Because that buildup of gas can be really, really bad. I wouldn't say it's too far to go to you know, point a fan at it and blow it out I mean, if it's been a while. Or wait a half an hour if it's been a long if you don't really know how long that might have happened setting your grill in a place where that doesn't happen that gets good wind protection is a good practice anyway and it prevents that from occurring but just when he was talking about this I, all I could see was that, that poor woman and, and think about what the, the horror of something like that happened grills are great 
I cook on the grill more than I do in the house. But whenever you're you know, involving something like gas and flame, you have potential for problems. And there's a lot of safety issues with a charcoal grill, too, but um, I'll, I'll leave that go today. And maybe someday we'll do a, a show just so maybe on... Maybe not all on grill safety. Maybe just uh, general safety around the home, with including grills and things like that in, in it. But I appreciate all of the calls uh, so far today. I do have one more before we wrap up. This one on facial recognition software. And I'm going to tell you why it is what it looks like, and it's more, too. Jack, this is Kevin from Alabama. I saw something interesting tonight that I thought you and your listeners would like to know about. While I was in checkout uh, at Walmart, went through the self-checkout line, and they had uh, TVs with security footage up. That's pretty normal. They've got computer vision running in the background to do human detection, and it's the uh, first step in the standard process for doing facial recognition. So if it's not already up and running in the background at your local Walmart, facial recognition is just literally one or two steps of code away. Thanks for all you do. I know there's people out there, they're in it with the NSA and the CIA, and they're tracking our every move and stuff like that. Listen, folks, they're tracking every move you have with that little box in your pocket, that cell phone. Um, I'm not going to say that government will not tie into and use this at some point, or maybe even compel and require a private entity like Walmart, since they do get so much benefit from the government from doing that to retain their benefits, and that it might not be used as a surveillance tool overall. I, I think that actually is an inevitability. But I don't think that's the main motivation that Walmart has here. What have I been saying is coming for years now? Joe wants to go to Walmart. Joe doesn't like long lines. Joe loves Walmart now because there's no more lines. Joe goes to Walmart. Joe gets his cart. Joe walks through Walmart and picks up a whole bunch of shit, puts it in a bag, and Joe walks out of Walmart. Walmart charges Joe for the items that he took. Joe gets a little thing, maybe a chime on his phone or something like that, that shows him the total so he didn't get charged $900 for $500 worth of shit. Joe says, okay, charge goes through, Joe leaves. That's the main reason for this. If I'm going to be able to track you as my customer and know who you are, and have you have a seamless situation where you can come in, select your items, and leave, and we can have a trustless transaction, which is the dream of a retail establishment. I would, this is, maybe this is the best way for people to understand this, because I've gotten a lot of resistance to this concept. Walmart wants retail outlets, and every other major retailer in the, in the, in the country wants this, wants them to work like websites. Walmart loves when you buy on walmart.com. Why? Because they have a process that just initiates and completes your order. There's no you know, person that didn't show up for work that day that's not working to register or whatever. But they would love it to have a retail outlet work like a website even more. Because there's a logistics component to Joe goes to walmart.com, buys five things, and they off the ship to Joe's house. We now have to retain the services of UPS or FedEx or USPS or what have you. We now have to have people that move those items individually instead of in mass. But if we have the store basically become a self-service warehouse, well, you take care of pickup and delivery for me. I don't have to charge you for it, and I don't have to pay for it. You see how that works? 
It's much easier to have the logistics of stocking 500 packs of macaroni and cheese on this shelf than to send three packs to Joe. So the main reason they're doing this facial recognition software is so they can build profiles on customers, track their spending habits, more effectively market to them, and eventually enable self-service stores. And again, the retail service market, cashiers and stuff like that, is millions of jobs. And, and people keep saying, well, these jobs are going to be replaced by other jobs. No, they're not. They are right now. There's so, but it, think about it like housing construction. If you have a job building houses, there's a point where enough houses have been built that there'll be plenty of people that are still doing building, but not everybody can keep building because we don't need that many new houses anymore unless we have a population growth sufficient to keep demanding more houses. And the U.S. population is barely at replacement. Without immigration, we are below replacement. Why do you think your government's so interested in immigration? Because if you want to keep a Ponzi scheme like Social Security going, you need, you need population growth. We don't have it. So that's what's going on here. We're hitting that kind of a plateau point eventually, and you're going to see jobs just crucified out of the market. And they're going to have to figure out how to, how to deal with this. There'll still be tremendous opportunity. We'll still have boom and bust economies both. It's not the end of the world. It's not the apocalypse. But it is coming, and this is a piece of it. And I'll bet you that almost every other retailer out there is working on this. And the ones that aren't, they're just letting other people do the work because there will be companies that just roll in and set this up. Target will do it. You know, if they're still around, Sears will do it. I mean, everybody's going to have, you're not going to see a person at a cash register in 10 to 15 years except in the very small store where it just doesn't make sense. Or the store where you got to have a consultant. Like, you know, the, like the old-school hardware-type store where somebody just, I know where those washers are or whatever. But most of the big stores, there won't be a cash register person. There might be one person up there just kind of keeping an eye on this kind of a security and helper. Like, this isn't working. Oh, well, let me see that for you. Okay, we'll manually do that or whatever. There might be somebody at the door that if a particular customer has popped as being uh, someone to keep an eye on, might be alerted by their little app on their little phone that's down there tethered to their employer, that, hey, Joe's leaving and we've had some concerns about Joe. You should check Joe. But we don't need 20 people at registers anymore. We need two or three at the door. That's what this really is. Now, those of you that are the deep state and all that shit, I, look, I ain't Alex Jones, but I do get the reality of if you give a power to the state, the state will use the power, eventually abuse the power, and screw up the power. Right? They'll use it uh, corruptedly and incompetently. It is inevitability. But that's not why Walmart's doing it. Walmart doesn't do things to please the government. Walmart does things for its bottom line. And Walmart's concerned with preventing theft, more effectively marketing to its customer base, and leaning out employees. They're the largest employer in the country. They have a few people they can cut. And there's some people that don't need to be working at all, but I'm glad they have a job and a lot of work for Walmart. And you have to ask yourself, if those people, you know the ones I'm talking about. Not every, I mean, some great people work for Walmart. Don't take that the right way. But you, if you've been to Walmarts enough, especially in larger cities, there are small towns where that Walmart has some of the best people in that town working at it. But when you get to a place where people have a lot of options of where to work, 
it's kind of your bottom tier that end up working at Walmart usually. And we've all had the person that we're trying to talk to at Walmart or deal with at Walmart. You're like, how do you how do you successfully convert oxygen? You know, I mean, like, I, I think you're at your limit right there. I, 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 don't, I don't understand. What, and they have a job because Walmart will hire people that are available. And like I said, man, you can say what you want about them, but a lot of stores are like that. The reason you're dealing with what we call a window licker is because that's all they're qualified to do, and they're not even that qualified for that. So where do they go next? You're going to see a transition of this country into one of the most technologically advanced, amazing things ever. And you think we're a welfare state now. Just wait. UBI, all that stuff is coming. That's just a kind of a, a, a symptom of the underlying illness that is going to... I don't know what to call it an illness. It is an indicator of the underlying evolution of society. For good and bad. Not all bad. And that wraps us up for today. I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support our show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Uh, if you go there, you can see all the stuff that we've reviewed on Amazon over the years. Uh, there's over 220 reviews uh, of Amazon product uh, at tspaz.com. Remember, if it's there, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it. If I need another one, I'll buy it again, because if that wasn't the case, it wouldn't be there. My brand is integrity. That's that's the most important thing in the world to me. You can think I'm an asshole, and I'm okay with that, but I don't ever want anybody to think that I'm deceitful for one second. Um, and today, the product that I have to, to recommend for you is for your gardens, and we are heading into fall garden season. And it's a component to the pillars of my fertility regime, uh, which involves a lot of other stuff that you can also find in the notes today. But this is the endomycorrhizal fungal inoculation. Uh, I buy a bag of this every year. I inoculate my beds with it in the spring, and then I inoculate my beds with it going into fall. It is one of the reasons I think I have such great results. What this stuff does is it basically feeds fungus into your soil. And this does a lot. What these fungi do is they make nutrients available to growing plants, they absorb root water, they retard disease, and they condition soil. And if you go take a look at the article, I've got everything explained. I don't want to go long on it, but this is a product I've recommended. Hundreds of you have bought it. I've heard great things about it. I've heard nothing bad about it. So, I mean, that's, that's the biggest testament that I can give to it. Uh, a one-pound bag is about 27 bucks. That might seem expensive, but you don't need a lot of it. Uh, I give the instructions to how I use it. But if you follow the instructions on the label, you'll find that a pound of this stuff goes a long way because it's a living base of these mycorrhizal fungi. And so when you seed it, they start growing and propagating and reproducing. Uh, this, along with all my other stuff, and if you look at the bottom of the review, you'll see one of the tags is fertility. And I have all of the components to my fertility system. And I'll just tell you what they are real quick. They are this uh, fungal inoculation, uh, a company that's called Hydro Organics. They're calcium and magnesium plant food. Um, Liquinox, iron and zinc chelated solution. Uh, GS Plant Foods liquid kelp. Dr. Earth Premium Gold Organic Fertilizer. And, of course, Garrett Juice Plus. Almost everything I do is based on compost and those items. And... This is one of those things, it can seem expensive, but you know, a gallon of Garrett juice is good for more than a year for most people. Uh, a pound of this fungi is good for more than a year for most gardeners. And 
when you have healthy plants and you get more production, the payback on the fertility aids is really, really fast. So check it out. You can find it all at survivalpodcast.com and click on TSPAS or just go to TSPAS.com. Again, when you look this one up, you can find all of the fertility program under the tag fertility that you'll see at the bottom. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I've got a song of the day for you today. We're in Elvis week. And uh, this is uh, probably one of Elvis's most covered songs. It's called Suspicious Minds. And this was released in 1969. And this was like Elvis's comeback song. I think it had been like seven years since he had, had a number one record. And it's also the last song that Elvis released that went to number one. I think those that weren't around back then, including me, kind of see Elvis as a musician first and an actor second. He did a lot of acting, and it, it slowed down his release of songs. And uh, because of that, he had these like kind of breaks in between. This song, to me, is the first rock song that was custom tailor-made for crossover in the country. And many of you will remember that Dwight Yoakam uh, did a, a cover of this song. Uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in there, Dwight Yoakam did a cover of this song. And that was definitely a country thing. But Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coltler covered this song in 1970. It was only a year old, and Waylon Jennings covered it, and it went to number 25 on the uh, country chart. And... Uh, It wasn't actually released in an album until 76 on Wanted the Outlaws. But Waylon Jennings covered this song in the 70s. And it's, it's to me, it's kind of the hallmark of a great song. When different artists from different genres can take a song and make it successful, you know, it, it just ends up being one of those things that's going to be a truly great, long-lasting song. And uh, I, I was, it's funny, when I look this song up on YouTube, I see people say, this is so much better than the modern version. And, and my, 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 my response to that really would be, well, which one? It's, it's been covered by Dwight Yoakam, Waylon Jennings, the Heptones, Candy Stanton, B.J. Thomas, and the Fine Young Cannibals. Which modern version are you talking about? And a bunch more beyond that. It actually, and this song even failed when it was initially released. Um, the guy that wrote it was a Memphis singer named Mark James. He recorded released his own version. It didn't go anywhere. It was uh, Memphis soul producer Chris Moman that brought it to Presley in 69, and Elvis immediately fell in love with it and decided he could turn it into a hit, even though it had flopped for the writer. Pretty cool stuff, man. I think this is a great song. Uh, we'll wrap up Elvis Week tomorrow. I hope you enjoy this song. Not a huge message here, I guess, other than To me, the message of this song is that all good relationships, this is, of course, about a romantic relationship, but all relationships are either built on trust or they're not worth being in. And if you want to destroy a relationship, whether it's romantic or friendship or family or business, lose trust. And if one of the partners in the relationship is implicitly untrusting, even if there's no reason, the relationship is doomed. A relationship without trust is one not really worth being in. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life in times get tough, or even if they don't. Because I love you too much, baby.
You do. 